0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about The Prestige, the 2006 psychological thriller directed by Christopher Nolan and starring Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. High-level plot summary, in 1890s London, Jackson and Bale play rival stage magicians engaged in a contest of one-upsmanship that escalates very quickly. and Sue. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 76% and the critics' consensus reads, full of twists and turns, The Prestige is a dazzling period piece that never stops challenging the audience. Here on Below the Line, we're not focused on what the critics thought, but this is a film I highly enjoyed, and if you haven't seen it, I recommend you check it out. This season, I'm releasing episodes in theme sets, and the series you're listening to now is focused on the property department. With that in mind, my guest today is Scott Buckwald, property master on The Prestige and returning guest of the show. Scott, it's nice to have you back. Morning, Skid. It's good to be back. So, Scott, you've been here before. We've talked about your resume and such, but tell us what you're working on now.
1: I just finished uh, season four of Queen of the South for USA and Netflix, and I am waiting my next project, which I should hear something about tomorrow.
0: Oh, wow. Well, good luck, Scott. Uh, Look forward to talking about that on another show. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to The Prestige. This is a prop-heavy movie, and I'm looking forward to talking more about that. But first, let's set the stage for our listeners. How did you get involved in the project?
1: It was leading on to Christmas time. I had just finished a job, and the job was a real pain-in-the-neck job. I was glad to be done with it, glad to have some time off for the holidays. We were at LAX, and we're sitting waiting for our plane, and I get a phone call. Person talks to me, they said, you come very recommended for this project, are you interested in it? And I really didn't want a job right now. And they start talking to me about, about the film. And it sounds relatively interesting, but they're being very vague. They, they said, we start filming middle of January. I'm like, so it's, it's only two weeks of prep? And they, they said, yes, it's, it's two weeks of prep. My first thought was this is a really low, low budget piece of junk. Two weeks of prep would to me mean it's very low budget. And I turned the job down. I said, nah, you know what? I'm, I'm really not interested. And the, the woman on the phone, the production coordinator or production uh, supervisor keeps insisting. She goes, well, it's a great script. I'd love to send you the script. Really like you to do it. Please just come in for an interview. And I said, well, I'm heading to New York now. Uh, can I catch up with you when I get back? She goes, yes, we're closing the production office today, but we'd love to meet with you. I go in January 3rd, I think of the new year. And I really didn't want to do it really. And I just, I didn't want to do a low budget movie, but this production office is at LA center stages in downtown LA, get off the elevator and they have the entire floor. There are concept drawings all over the place. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking, this is not a low budget film. There's, there's something going on here. As I sit down and I start talking to him, I find out that Christopher Nolan had not been getting along with the current prop master. They're still in prep. They haven't started shooting yet. And he let her go. So they, they bring me in and interview goes great. Meet the production designer, meet the producers, meet Christopher Nolan. And they offer me the job. And now I have a total different, idea of what this movie is. So I instantly accept it.
0: So Scott, when they called you for the job, you weren't aware that it was a Christopher Nolan film. I
1: had no idea. They were being very hush hush. They really didn't tell me the concept of the story. They just said it was a really interesting script. They did not mention Christopher Nolan. I had no idea, no idea whatsoever that it was as big a movie as it was. Otherwise, I I never would have turned it down originally. They must have thought I was really something else that I would be turning down a Christopher Nolan movie, especially one like this.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, let's talk more about so how it's structured. It's set in London, but you mentioned uh, the production offices being at LA Center Studios. Were they Had they taken over those stages as well? Is that where you did most of the filming? No,
1: there was a lot of downtown location, a lot of buildings in downtown LA. And then we shot at Universal as well
0: for the stage work. And what about yeah. the exterior stuff? Like, for example, there's a whole series of uh, uh, shots in the Colorado Springs, supposedly.
1: A lot of that was shot, in, I think we did some in Mount Washington. A lot of a lot of stuff was shot at, like I said, uh, the back lot of Universal Studio. All of London was Universal Studio. They went to Colorado Springs, I believe, for the exterior of the, the hotel and the train arrival. Uh, and that was like I think like two or three days. Otherwise, the whole thing was was all in L.A. Christopher Nolan wanted to shoot in L.A. He did not want to go away. And he really wanted to prove that a movie like this can be shot in L.A. And there was no reason to take film outside of Los Angeles.
0: Well, that's interesting. And a good uh, transition to my next question. What's it like working on a Christopher Nolan project in general?
1: He is extremely detailed. Because I only had two weeks to prep the whole movie, they let me hire as many crew people as I needed to do. Uh, as I needed to get. And we did an amazing show and tell. Uh, He is very specific. He's definitely open for suggestions, but he knows, he he definitely is able to point me in the direction that I wanted to go. So if if I needed uh, a cat collar, he explained the kind of cat collar he was looking for. He didn't tell me, I want cat collar A7. I I had room to, to, to be creative. But he was very definite of what direction I should be heading. He really does his homework in every area. The whole movie is very well planned out.
0: How much of that planning then translates to a particular directing style on the actual shooting days?
1: Uh, very well storyboarded. Uh, I mean, there's a definite Christopher Nolan style, but I, I would think, you know, most directors have a, a specific style. I don't know whether you plan a style. I think your style is <laughs> just what your style is, whether it's a, as a musician or whatever it is. If you're just being yourself and you're not trying to imitate somebody else's style, it, that's who he is. And I think there's a definite, like Alfred Hitchcock or Steven Spielberg or, or Frank Capra, there's a definite Christopher Nolan style, whether it's a Batman movie or The Prestige. You could see there's a certain mark that he makes in a movie.
0: And so, just kind of in general was this was this shoot a grind? Was it uh, easy days? Did you guys feel like it sounds like you had the resources you needed to put together some uh, uh, incredible yeah, budget s- such but like how did it feel actually to do the work
1: budget was was not an issue. I had whatever money i I needed. I had as big a support staff as I needed as well. The prep was the hardest part because I had to start from square one. And we really had like eight weeks of work to do inside a little over two weeks. So my prep was, was really off the hook. It was like something I've never experienced before. We were working 18 hour days to prep it. We were working the weekends, uh, just working round the clock to, to get everything done. I really, really liked to start a movie with the entire film, pretty much prepped and in the truck. I knew I wasn't gonna do it on this one. So I looked at the first couple weeks of the schedule and I was prepping for, to have the first couple weeks completed. But once we started shooting, it was actually one of the easiest jobs I ever worked because Christopher Nolan wants to do between eight and 10 hour days, Mm. which to a lot of people, they would think, well, that's a normal day (laughs) in in, in the regular workforce (laughs) it is. Um, Queen of the South, for example, we were doing, 15 and 16 hour days. So for a film shoot, especially one of this magnitude and one with magic tricks, it was a very, very short day. And we didn't go into much overtime. So funny enough, I didn't make as much money on this movie as I did on much lesser films, even though this is the more prestigious, so to speak, of my in my resume.
0: <laughs> you know, Scott, the, so you mentioned the magic that you're filming, and that uh, leads me to another question. Let's talk about the differences between stage magic and movie magic. In other words, there's tricks we use with a camera and can edit and just the way we film things to make things appear magical on screen. But when you're filming magic tricks, are we doing those? Are we using the camera or... Are the tricks themselves being executed on stage for a movie like this?
1: It's a good question. With this, Christian Bale in particular really wanted to do his own magic tricks. And all through prep, he was always practicing a lot of the sleight of hand. And they had hired um, Ricky Jay, who passed away not too long ago, who's really considered one of the great sleight of hand magicians ever him and his assistant were teaching the actors how to do a lot of the sleight of hand, a lot of the magic. Christian Bale, we got him these two red rubber balls and he was always walking around with the balls in his hand, with cards in his hand, anything that he could perfect that. The thing with magic is to make magic very fluid. It's like playing an instrument. A lot of movies where an actor who say doesn't play piano has to play piano. He might take piano lessons and learn to look like he's playing piano. And he might even sound like he's playing piano, but he's hardly a a virtuoso piano player. The the same went with the magic. They were doing all of their own tricks, but the computer would clean it up. So when he would go to hand out a, a business card and he would do a sleight of hand on the business card, he would do the trick. A lot of times it looked very good, but sometimes if a little piece of it was sticking out from his fingers, they would clean that up in post. But most of the time, they were doing their own tricks.
0: And uh, I want to uh, mention again, uh, Ricky Jay, he has a small part in the movie. Uh, as a, in the beginning, he's a, a magician that um, employs both of our leads in a support role. Are you letting me know then that he was actually there for more of the filming?
1: Oh, as- he, was, he was there the whole time. His job was technical advisor.
0: And uh, for those who don't know, uh, look him up. Ricky Jay has played magicians in and, and not just these sort of movies, but also a lot of movies about con games and, and other things. He's got quite a storied Hollywood history as well. Uh, he's missed. Talking more about the specific procs, you mentioned the rubber ball, which plays right. obviously a significant role for Christian Bale's character throughout talk about finding the rubber ball. Was this something that, Chris, again, Christopher Nolan had something specifically in mind around that?
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a magic store in Pasadena and we went to them a lot. It's, with something like a rubber ball, a lot of it is the texture. They need to be able to hold it correctly. It wasn't just going to a toy store or a sporting goods store and buy, buying any rubber ball. It is a magician's red rubber ball. So we did have a bunch of those. And, and again, it's just when they're doing the tricks that they do, they don't slip out of the hand. They handle the sweat on the hand. They're a good palming size. If you've never thought about magic at all, the best thing you could consider is thinking of it as a musician. It's very, very musical. Uh, like a musician, he has very specific ideas of how it's supposed to be done. A guitar has to be strung just right. It has to be a specific brand. It's very much like that.
0: So, Scott, tell me more about some of the magic tricks and from a prop perspective, what you had to bring in and, and, and serve as those tricks, if you will.
1: Uh, a lot of the magic tricks were sleight of hand, so it was various cards, rubber balls, stuff like that. And that was very much handled by by Ricky J. He told us what to get, and, and we just went through his sources on that one. One trick in particular, which which we had to make, there's a scene where Uh, Christian Bale is with his wife and they do a bullet catch and that we actually constructed the prop to be the way it really was. That gun had to be, we took a a regular old style uh, ball loading gun, but when we, when we put the, the ball into the gun, it's held onto the plunger with a magnet. So the bullet is then taken out of the gun and what he fires He's really just igniting the powder. There's there's no projectile in the muzzle of the gun. So that we worked on. And he did that. That was done totally the way it would really be. You see him put the, the ball into the gun. You see him then plunging it in. And it then the magnet then pulls the ball out. So that was done exactly how the trick really would have been done. And that's done several hey, times in the movie.
0: Hey, you know, Scott, that's an interesting example. Because that seems to me a case where... With a camera cut, it'd be very simple to just switch the guns. And given, you know, going further back to the accident that happened on the Crow many years ago, um, where, you know, a similar fake gun and some, you know, some poor handling of weapons resulted in Brandon Lee's death, uh, I'm surprised even that th- there wasn't some sort of a level of caution that, for example, like with actors doing their own stunts.
1: Well, there, there was. There was. I don't remember exactly how it was handled, but I could promise you we would see if the ball had come out. I would have to watch that scene to see how the cuts were done, but especially in a post-Brandon Lee world, there was definitely no, no chances taken. But again, even if there were cuts being done, the action that the actors took in, in performing it was all done correctly. If there was a cut done, then it was done Simply for either Christopher Nolan's aesthetics or for the safety of the shot, it was never done to allow the trick to happen. The trick could have happened on its own. Whether it comes across that way because of the cuts is secondary to the fact of if there was one master shot, the trick would have worked because it was being done correctly by the actors.
0: Wow! Um, another uh, prop that catches my—he um, has a rig set up that creates a birdcage that is going to. Extract back into his sleeves, right? As a disappearing trick, prop wardrobe or something in between. That, that was, was
1: huge... that was all special effects. Ah. Uh, they built the whole apparatus, but again, it was fully operational. What you saw happening really was happening. Uh, that was that was amazing to watch. That one, the whole rig was put on him, and it really did what it was supposed to do. Again, not done with any kind of post-production special effects. That was all practical effects happening at the time. If we were on stage and you were watching it, it did appear to work.
0: Wow. What about uh, these bird cages where uh, there's a a conceit in the film that is actually uh, perhaps a bit of a spoiler or a hint of where things are going, where the cage disappears and the bird is crushed, but then there's a live bird that the magician pretends is the same bird. What about those tricks? How did those come together from a props perspective in the film?
1: Well, clearly the, the canaries were not being killed in the movie. I believe we had a bunch of fake canaries. So if you were seeing a shot where you saw the cage collapse upon the bird, it was a fake canary put in. But again, the cage collapsed. If you were to do this the way they were claiming to do it, it would have
0: worked. And uh, now I know um, we did a past uh, episode talking about animals on set and the difficulty of getting... Dead animals, actually. There's quite a few dead birds in the series of this movie. Did you have to make special arrangements to get bird corpses for all of these scenes? Or is that, did that fall under your responsibility?
1: Yeah, it does. And you won't, we would have to fill out an ASPCA form just to state that we didn't buy live canaries and killed them for the use of the movie. A lot of pet stores, you go to their distributor, you go to where Petco gets their canaries or hamsters or whatever, and the ones that have just died naturally, you can receive them from them.
0: Uh, Scott, what other uh, props of note, if you will, stick in your memory about this film?
1: There's the Asian man who is the magician as well, who they're both amazed how he, he lives his life for his magic. And we actually got him, he, he carries a giant fishbowl between his legs, and this guy was really doing that. What we did get is, and this was difficult, is they're easy to find those kind of fish bowls in glass. We had to find one in plastic, so it wasn't so heavy, so that he really could carry this bowl around. That was a bit of a trick, finding that. Also, I just remember one thing that was very difficult was the, uh, the canes that Hugh Jackman carries. Christopher Nolan had a very specific idea in mind for the cane. And I remember we found a cane shop in London and we were speaking with them directly. They, were, they weren't online. We, I don't remember how we found them. I think our prop coordinator was able to find this contact for me and we made arrangements to have these canes sent over. They weren't particularly expensive, but we just got so many different canes until Christopher found the one that he, he particularly liked. Another prop that I remember we put so much time into there's a scene in the hotel where I believe it's Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, can't remember who else. They're sitting at a table and they're eating dinner and it starts off and they're drinking Moet champagne. So we were able to contact the company. They sent us period bottles with period labels. But in the background, there's this massive food buffet set out. And I actually went to school for, for history. So this was something I brought to Christopher Nolan. I said, I wanted to see if he had anything in mind for the food. And he just said he wanted it to look very lavish, very appropriate for this hotel. And then as I did research for that, come to find that a lot of the food, we wanted to have it period food. Things like tomatoes, fresh vegetables, really weren't around for people in the 1890s during the winter. So I worked with a chef who I've used quite a bit in the past. And the two of us, he spent weeks preparing a menu and then putting all of this food together. And I can't remember exactly how much money we spent, but it was more money than I've ever had on a single food scene. And of course, when you see the movie, you barely see any of the food. (laughs) But uh, a lot of work, a lot of work was put into not just making it aesthetically beautiful for the camera, but again, all of the food had to be period correct.
0: And Scott, is that a trend through all of Christopher Nolan's attention to detail? Like, is that very important to him? Even though you brought, it sounds like he wasn't asking for that specifically, but you brought it to him. I'm presuming that that did well, fit in his overall vision. He, he
1: is extremely one for detail. I, I think the food was just most people didn't realize that there is period food. The things that are obvious, things like the handcuffs that we use, the the various police chains, stuff like that. That was all a given that that was would be different than present day, but things like food, people just don't think of that. And I, you know, it's been many years now. It's been thirteen years or so. Uh, I'm sure he said he wanted the food period correct to a degree. I don't think he was looking at it to be as detailed as I ended up doing it. But that's my job. His his job is not to tell me that they wouldn't have had tomatoes. He would just say, make sure the food is period correct. And then I find out that they really wouldn't have been eating tomatoes back then.
0: I'm thinking of another key prop, Scott, the diaries. When you have it, something like that, that's a key to the film, there's a lot of that goes into it. Is that something that you have a specialist put together? Someone writes that yes. out? or Actually, Erin Brown,
1: still a friend of mine. She's a filmmaker as well, an actress. She has a a film that she just did. She was our prop department coordinator and an unbelievable artist. I have used her in many jobs before and since. She did all of the mechanical drawings and it's amazing. She hit it out of the park the first try. I had her do a bunch of sample pages and we based it a lot on, we found like old popular mechanic style magazines of the era, just so she had that feel. She did a bunch of sample pages. I showed it to Christopher. And for something that I thought we were going to go back and forth on, and that was going to become the, the bane of my existence, she knocked it out the first time. He looked at it. He loved it. And she did several of the books. We have several copies of, of each book. But every single dot and line in that book was from her hand.
0: And so if you have several copies. Is, it, is there a hero copy and then there's stunt copies, if you will? Or are they all identical so that it can be used at any time? How does that work?
1: We had... I can't remember, maybe three or four that were identical. And they were all the way through. Erin put a lot of work in that. I think there was two different books. So she had to do uh, three or four of each copy. But then we did have some stunt ones. If the book was just being carried around in the actor's pocket, or if it gets thrown, there's no point in spending the time and money to have Erin illustrate all of all of that book. However, the other books, when they're flipping through it, all of those had to be ready to go. And we needed multiple copies because on the day the actor spilled something on it, or one got lost, or a page got torn out, or, or worn, or got finger marks on it, we had to have another one ready to go.
0: That makes, that makes good sense. To you. I mean, you don't necessarily want to risk all of that if you don't have to, but yeah, being ready to switch something out if there is an issue, uh, uh, critical to have that planned ahead of time. So, so Scott, talking about planning ahead of time, a movie like this, how long normally would you have for prep?
1: A movie like this, normally, probably 10 weeks, 10 weeks of prep. Like I said, we did a solid five weeks in the first two weeks. And once the movie started filming, I continued to prep all the way through.
0: It was hard to get ahead. Of like You mentioned normally wanting to have the whole movie on the truck and then dealing with things that change. And this one, you had to keep prepping straight through just because there wasn't much time up front.
1: I, I, say, I, I would say I prepped for at least the first three weeks of production. And then things started to, to settle down a little bit. You know, I, I really lucked out on certain props, like those books in particular. That's something that I expected to put a lot more time in than I did. So I was lucky that that, that worked out easily. So that was a, a major time saver. But there's, you know, there's a lot of other props that you don't even consider. Probably when you watched the movie, you were looking at things like the bird cages or the cards, the balls, the, the guns, but when you're the seeds of the streets of London, every person walking on the street, whether they're carrying a hat box or a briefcase or they're carrying any kind of hand props for all of the background, for those hundred people, all of that stuff was sought out. Little kids with dolls, just slices of life kind of props. I remember we must have rented a hundred period umbrellas just to give to background people. So a lot of times the background props, which are the less celebrated props, are I put a lot more time into those just for the sheer number of what I have to go after.
0: And so uh, because we're focused on props with this series and and this episode in particular, I want to dive a little deeper, Scott, if you don't mind uh, thinking about it a little. Talk to me a little bit about the relationships between prop masters and i'm i'm curious because you came in with two weeks before filming began but presumably this other prop master had put in if not the eight weeks of the full 10 five or six weeks before they started looking for someone new did all of that work just go with them is there no sort of something that the movie holds on to that you inherited from the other prop master?
1: Sure. No, there were a lot of things that this prop master did. Personally, I thought this prop master had done an excellent job. The stuff that was left for me was very well done. This prop master has an amazing reputation, certainly a good prop master. It was not a case of the person not doing a good job. From what I understood, it was a personality conflict, a a little too much arguing with Christopher Nolan. And you could do that to a degree, but you need to know when not to keep doing it. And this person just took it a little too far. Like I said, the props that were left were spectacularly done. Really great job. And, you know, that also did save us some time because we did start, I I think I said earlier, we started from square one. That might not be entirely true. It's easier sometimes to start from square one on a majority of things, but there were some key props. I remember the cat collars were already purchased. There was some leads on some other stuff. But we never, we never spoke. When the other prop master left, it, it's different when a prop master leaves because they get another job or they get sick or there's a family issue. Mm. Then there's a certain pro- professional courtesy. You, you, you do a handoff. When a prop master is let go, usually they're not very willing to want to cooperate for, and help a film that just, that just fired them.
0: Right. No, and that's uh, that's a, a reasonable response to that. And I think, but uh, but you also talked about the sort of circle of support folks, whether it's expertise in uh, food, someone you've worked with before, or your prop coordinator that brings her artistic expertise. When a prop master leaves, I'm presuming this group of people leave with that person generally, and so yes. in that sense, you are starting with a full new team.
1: Yeah, uh, sometimes the other department might be offered to me. And at one point, I've taken over jobs several times over the years. And and I find that with few exceptions, it's usually better to bring my own crew in. A lot of times the original crew is happy to hold on to their job, but their loyalty usually remains with the prop master who's no longer with us. And I I find that I've been treated sometimes as an outsider and I've really not been given the cooperation that I want so I've learned that when I get hired when the if the producer on the phone or when I go for my interview they said you know we'd really like to keep such and such uh, very rarely do I do it I mean I'll interview the person if it's a person that I've worked with before and I also know then I'm a little more apt to do that but I've had some really nasty experiences in the past and I don't care to follow that
0: that road. It's a sensible approach as well. Scott, let me ask you about one other specific element of the film. The opening scene is a pile of top hats. Wardrobe may pick out the hat, but when we're talking about that many hats, is that entirely on wardrobe side or do they end up in the prop department?
1: That was both of us. The costume department found a lot of the hats, but because we needed so many, we had to go digging for them as well. My first assistant, Jared Flurry, who is an amazing, amazing person. I could not have done this film with, with, without Jared. Uh, he is a man of many, many talents. Jared went and worked with the costume people to procure all of these hats. And they were all period hats. None of these were remanufactured. There might've been some in the, de- in the, in the way background, but all of those were, were real hats. And the, the PS to that was a lot of them got destroyed because they're out in the snow, they're out in the water. So the, the, the prop house wasn't all too pleased the condition of some of these hats when we returned them. So there was some loss and damage attributed to that scene, but that was planned on and we expected it. It wasn't a, a mistake. I mean, we knew they were going to get wet. We, every All the damage that happened, that was meant to happen.
0: So there are no crew pictures of everybody in top hats because you certainly had enough hats to probably put them on every member of the crew.
1: <laughs> you know, there, there wasn't, and that's the kind of stuff where... When you're working a 10 hour day, it is all business. And I think you know me well enough that if there was an opportunity to take that picture with everybody wearing the hats, (laughs) I would have loved to have done it. But this really was being on your A game from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And we had so much stuff going on that doing that kind of stuff was not really
0: the thought at the moment. Not as much room on this one. Uh, Scott, earlier you mentioned about how Christian Bale really wanted to learn his sleight of hand tricks himself. In general, how about the other actors? How did they take to using these props, whether it's the skills or just uh, interacting with you back and forth? What, What kind of atmosphere did the actors bring to set?
1: As I'm interviewing for the job, or once I had the job, and the cast list is being read to me, I'm usually lucky to work on a movie that has one or two really big name talents, somebody that gives me bragging rights. But this, you know, Michael Caine, David Bowie, Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Scarlett Johansson, one name after the other. And I'm I'm like, oh my God. And I'm a movie fan. That's what's really important about my job. I am not doing this strictly because I want to be a prop master. I am a total movie geek. The cast was phenomenal. I remember the first person I met of, on the entire cast was Michael Caine. First day of shooting, and with with a prop master, there's a lot of one on one work with the actors. So I go to introduce myself to Michael Caine, and I go, "Hi, I'm I'm Scott Buckwald. I just wanted to introduce myself to you. If there's anything that you need or any anything I could I could do for you, please don't hesitate to ask." Big smile on his face, shakes my hand. He goes, "Scott, lovely to meet you, Michael." And I'm shaking his hand, and I am absolutely starstruck. He didn't want to be called Sir Michael, didn't want to be called Mr. Kane. He just introduced himself to, as Michael. And I'm shaking his hand and I'm thinking, I'm a grown man and I am actually being starstruck by by meeting him. And he could not have been nicer. The, the guy has a memory that was phenomenal. We were on the stage, the scene where Piper Parabo gets, uh, where she drowns in the tank. And we're backstage on that. And he and in between, in between shots, he starts talking to me about craft service and different movies, how the craft service was. And he actually starts talking about the craft service supervisor on Alfie, which was you know <laughs> almost 50 years ago. And he has perfect recall of, of this person, how delightful the person was. And he loves holding court, loves talking, could not have been more cheerful. Everything you would hope one of your favorite actors would be, he was. Uh, We shot a Monday through Friday schedule. Every Friday, and this is a tradition with him, Hugh Jackman would hand out a lottery ticket to every member of the cast and crew. And he would hand you the ticket, shake your hand, say, good luck. He would do this during, during our lunch break. And every Friday without fail he would make sure to be there to hand every member of the crew uh, a lottery ticket.
0: You know, I, uh, I worked with Hugh Jackman back on Swordfish, one of his early U.S. roles, and he didn't do it every Friday, but on uh, Friday the 13th and a couple other times, he also handed out those dollar scratch tickets for the crew yeah. to see if anyone would get lucky. I'm, I'm pleased to, to hear that that uh, tradition has, has survived his, uh, his rise in the Hollywood ranks. Yeah, really
1: really wonderful. Scarlett Johansson was everything that a movie star is. I remember I was sitting and talking to her one day. We were at on the Universal backlot and we were just talking. I remember looking at her going, "She is beautiful. The way Grace Kelly was beautiful. Just real classic gorgeous Hollywood kind. You could see why she became Scarlett Johansson." I will say though, of all of the the thrills that I got there's two in particular that really stand out meeting David Bowie being the the music fan that I am David Bowie is very important to me as as a as the kind of musician he is plus my group of friends live for David Bowie (laughs) I mean going through high school I have two friends in particular who just the, the the sun rises and sets on David Bowie so my first day you know do the same thing introduce myself to him and we work together. The next day, uh, I come onto set, and he sees me before I see him, and he says, good morning, Scott. And I say, oh, good morning. And as I walk away, I'm just like beaming, again, like a little kid going, David Bowie actually knew my name. And, you know, I know it's a really geeky thing to say, and it's, 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 it, it could almost be embarrassing if it wasn't such a thrill for me to meet him. And Christian Bale, same thing. Every day, Really friendly, would eat lunch with the crew. Just really, just a great guy. Really liked Christian Bale. I, I would say on the entire movie, there, there wasn't anybody, cast or crew alike, that made anything about the movie re- regrettable. Really was one of the high points in my career.
0: Any, uh, any other uh, anecdotal stories or specific props we haven't really talked about that come to mind?
1: Like I said, the, the props that I spent so much work on really were a lot of the background props because it is having to create a world. When we were in downtown London, again, which was the the back lot of Universal, uh, we had a lot of of handbills that were going up. I remember that we put a lot of work into. There were scenes of posters advertising the magic shows. Any kind of graphic work always is a a big part of, of the prop department. Also, because usually paper goods, it's very hard to find originals because it needs to look new for the day. Mm-hmm. And that, that also is something that you know you would think, well, you go to flea markets, you go to antique stores. The problem is with a lot of props, they, they've decomposed over the years or they, they're showing their age, which is why, for instance, all of the canes, a lot of the umbrellas, a lot of that stuff has been remanufactured to look new, but they're old and that i would say is my my biggest chore on a movie getting background counts and making sure that that slice of life walking through london in 1890 makes sense that we have enough briefcases we have people with flowers that there's people eating food if there's push carts we have the right food or or wares dressed onto the push cart other prop that totally was last minute when tesla unveils his his machine there's a big uh, leather cover that is over it that came up totally at the last minute i believe it was like a friday morning i get called to the producer's office this is the big machine that that tesla makes he wanted it to be unveiled at this showing he didn't want it just to be there so this plays monday this machine had to have been easily 20 feet tall. And I don't know how big at the, at the base called a prop house who does manufacturing. And basically I told them money is not an issue. Uh, went and spoke with them. This is what I need. And no is not the answer. It has <laughs> to be made. Uh, doesn't matter how much it costs, but we needed to have the appropriate buckles put into it. The snaps had to all be period correct, and this is a tall order. I mean this is this is a big deal to make when when you have weeks to make it. Uh, this planning was really done on sitting in front of the people who were making it with a pencil and a napkin and pretty much just saying, and a lot of it was just my description, and they had to just put it in their heads. They worked on this thing from Friday morning, and we literally literally to the meaning of literally had this thing brought to us Monday morning hours. It, I, it probably shot later in the day Monday, but it was brought to us Monday morning, uh, eight, nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and these and they worked, the, the lights did not turn off. They had crews three straight days working on this thing. And luckily we do get good scenes of that. And it, it fit the machine perfectly. Everything worked. And they understood it was a tall order. They realized there was a lot of can-go-wrongs in a project like this. But they loved it. They used it. And you know, credit to everybody who had a hand in, in doing that. But that was a big deal on the, on the film. And yeah, that's the thing. When the audience sees a movie like this, they don't realize how much went into that. You know, You, you see movies of any type, present day, especially period, and you lose track over just how much work was put into sometimes the most insignificant appearing of items.
0: But it sounds like, and again, on a movie like this, particularly with the magic tricks drawing a lot of the odds uh, intentionally, if you will, um, it seems though that you, though, do see that a lot of your effort made it onto the screen. In other words, the effort you put into the cover, the work you had to do to get these period scenes in the background to, to work. When you watch the movie, this effort is on the screen in, in spades. This is actually opening up a topic,
1: which has been something very important to me. It's very frustrating as a prop master. And there are a group of us who have talked about this, that in a movie like this, whether it's film or, or for television, there is no Emmy, Oscar, there are no award categories for props. Props are still seen the way they were seen many years ago during the classic era of filmmaking where the prop master very often would go to the Warner brothers prop house, take things off the shelf and show up on set with them in a show like this. I did as much creating a world as did the costume designer, anybody else. And it is, it does get very frustrating that we're not noticed for that kind of stuff, especially in a movie like the prestige where the story is driven by the props creating those those magic books, uh, certain things. I mean, getting the balls, no. I mean, I went to a magic store and I bought period correct magic rubber balls, but that's no different sometimes than the costume designer going out and just buying a pair of shoes. But there were many aspects of that movie which were created, which did not exist. And very instrumental in driving the plot forward. These, I really stand With a lot of pride on the props in this movie because it did contribute to making the movie what it was. And a lot of those props people love seeing photos of or hearing about, which is what brought this movie into discussion with you.
0: Well, you know, we're doing a whole series on props, as we mentioned. So hopefully they'll get a little more attention on that and we'll see what we can do with it, see if we can't uh, move some. Emmy or uh, uh, Academy folks to, to recognize this a little deeper Scott this has been a lot of fun to talk about today thanks so much for joining me
1: oh you're so welcome it was really a pleasure
0: well for listeners if you haven't seen the film uh, once again I encourage you to go watch it and then come back and give this episode another listen let me know what you thought of the episode overall so you can send an email to skid s-k-i-d at below the line one word, dot biz that's b-i-c I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where your ratings and comments really do help us reach new listeners. And Facebook, where for your official entertainment, I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at PodcastBelowTheLive. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at PodBelowTheLive. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another behind-the-scenes deep dive as we continue our series on the property.